Good morning, church. Uh, I'm really excited to be here with you guys today. If you've never met me, my name is Aaron Whitaker. Uh, I'm actually support raising right now to go on staff with H2O Cincinnati. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to be able to bring the word to you guys and to study God's word with you. Um, I did want to uh, give a little intro into the passage before we even get into it. Um, this is kind of a strange passage and for some it might even be scary. We may not know what to do with uh, scriptures like this, but I do want to encourage you and encourage us before we even jump into this. Um, I don't want us to feel like we have to avoid certain passages that we don't quite understand. Um, everything in the Bible is so important um, and is put there for a reason. And I don't want to feel like we have to set it aside because we don't understand it. In fact, I actually think that these scriptures can grow us so much more um, than other scriptures that, are, that come kind of easy for us. It makes us put our trust in God that His Word is good, and it makes us trust that, that what He is telling us is good. So even if we dive into scripture and we don't necessarily understand everything that God is trying to tell us, we can still walk away knowing that whatever situation it was, God is still good, and His Word is still good, and He is still working everything for His glory. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get into it. Father, I just thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would fall more in love with your word every day. We would realize the importance and significance of it. God, I pray as we enter into this time of, of studying your word that um, you would just be with me, that, that these words would not be my own. God, I pray that you would speak to your people, that you would pierce the hearts of your people here today and wherever they are listening or watching to this, um, that they would take away the fact that, that we can praise you and glorify you and be thankful for you always, um, regardless of how we are feeling. God, I pray this in your name. Amen. So yeah, like I said, I wanted to uh, give some context into the passage first. So what we're going to be doing is picking up right where Grant left off last week. Uh, we're going to be studying Ezra chapter 9 and 10. And so a quick overview of what happens in this. Essentially, Ezra returns to Jerusalem after being in exile for many years. And when he returns, he's told that many of the Israelites have actually intermarried with women who worship pagan gods and women from pagan nations. And this tears Ezra up. And as a result, he laments and prays and confesses on behalf of his people. And after, he issues a decree that all of those men are to divorce those wives and send away those wives and children. So you can see right away... Um, there might be a little bit of angst when reading this. We don't know what to do with it. Um, and it may be obvious why we can't just read the Bible without context or why we can't um, just take everything in the Bible as face value good. And so we're going to wrestle a little bit later um, as to if this was the right decision by Ezra. But first, I wanted to actually give some examples to support the case of not everything in the Bible um, is necessarily good. Actually, a lot of it that the people do is not good. The first example that I think of is in Genesis chapter 9. Noah, after getting off the ark with his family, he plants a vineyard, and off that vineyard he drinks wine and gets drunk off of it. He walks into his tent 
and takes off his clothes and passes out. And then his son Canaan walks in and sees him lying there naked. Now back then, that is a big no-no. That, that's uh, highly disrespectful on behalf of Canaan. And so Noah actually curses Canaan for even doing that. But the Bible says nothing about how Noah got drunk. And we know through reading the whole Bible that God doesn't condone that. God doesn't want us to get drunk. It's very clearly a sin. But if you read that without understanding what the whole Bible says about that issue, then you don't understand that. The second example that I think of is in Judges chapter 9. If you're familiar with this story, then you might even remember the specific uh, scripture that, that comes from this because it, it's a weird one. In Judges chapter 19, a Levite staying with a stranger, he's traveling with a stranger and his concubine, um, when a group of Benjamites come and bang on the door um, and ask the homeowner to give over the Levite so that they can do horrible things to him. So as a response, the Levite actually gives his concubine to these men and throughout the course of the whole night, they rape and eventually kill her. Now that is condemned within the Bible, but what is not condemned is the Levite's response. What he does is he takes her dead body and he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends a, a piece of her to each of the tribes of Israel as a message. Now, of course, we would all say that that is pretty messed up. That's, that's not anything that God would condone, but it happened and there was no word on it, whether it was good or bad. We actually have to figure that out for ourselves and we have to use the Bible to study the Bible. These are really only a few of the many times that the Bible, uh, this happens in the Bible, uh, but that's okay. Really, the Bible was never intended to be a group of stories and a bunch of laws um, that we need to emulate and try to follow. In fact, it's almost the opposite. It's a group of laws and telling us, God telling us what is good, but it's stories of people who are just like us who continue to mess it up and continue to not do what is good. And that's what makes the Bible so beautiful. It's not about the people of the Bible being good or it's not about us being good. It's about God being good. And the Bible is the story of God's redemption for his people. And the story uh, that leads to Jesus living the life that we could never live and dying for us so that we may be redeemed and that we may be righteous before God. And this might seem like common sense. To a lot of you, you might know this and we honestly might brush it off a little bit. But I encourage us to really, every time we step into reading the Bible, we, we take this seriously and we really uh, make this a part of our daily prayers as we go into the Bible and we meditate on this fact. Because there is a epidemic of half-hearted, lazy, poor interpretation of the Bible throughout the years of even especially the nation of America that has led to things like slavery and the prosperity gospel among many things that Christians have stood on that are, are morally wrong. And so that's why it's so important that, that we teach this to our friends, we teach this to our kids, and we instill a careful use of the Bible in our study. So without further ado, I do now want to get into the text. So uh, we're going to be starting at Ezra 9. Uh, it's going to be verse 1. This is what happens. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, 
The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. So like I said, we have to get context around the passage so we can understand uh, why the result happened. So I do want to lay some groundwork for this text. As I mentioned, Ezra comes in and this is what he's told once he rejoins his people. Uh, And I do not believe that necessarily this means that uh, the people groups listed in verse 1 are necessarily those exact people groups. If you actually look at the text, the text suggests that they are people who practice similar practices to those people groups who were forbidden. Although I don't think that makes a huge impact on whether or not it was right for the Israelites to do it. I believe that it was still wrong for the Israelites to do it, mostly because the reasons why God instructed the Israelites not to intermarry with these people. Verse 2, it mentions the holy race. Now that is also translated into holy seed. What the holy seed is, is the nation of Israel. God promised Abraham that he would give him a people and through that people he would give the promised Messiah. And so Israel was a set apart nation, not only so that God could use them to send a message to the world of God's goodness, but also so that they could deliver the Messiah. So that is part of why they had to maintain the purity of the seed of Israel. Another big reason as to why God wanted to forbid this is because, quite frankly, he knew that they were going to sin if they intermarried with those people groups. If they married with people who do not worship God and worship other pagan gods, then they were for sure to abandon God and to move into relationships with other gods. And so it's actually really sad to see that not only is it happening here, but this particular act is actually one of the things that gets Israel sent into exile in the first place. So you can sympathize and imagine Ezra coming back to his people excited to instill the Torah in their lives and finds out that they have done the same thing that got them exiled in the first place. So now hopefully you have a little bit of context behind um, the why of it. And and so we're going to go into, skip ahead to Ezra chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. And uh, this is the response from Ezra and, and the peoples. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites Men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehu, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying women, foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and all of those who fear the commandments of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. 
We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. They took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohan, son of Elisha. While he was still there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decisions of the elders and officials and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Um, now, we're going to do our best to interpret, um, was this the right choice? Essentially, what happened after um, the, the rest of the chapter, they form a committee so that they can take a case-by-case basis of every man who is married to foreign, uh, foreign women. And then at the end, there's just a big long list of people who had, who had committed that sin and who had put away their wife. And so uh, we're just going to take some time to weigh both arguments. Was this the right decision or was this not the right decision? The first side I want to look at was that Ezra was not right in ordering the divorce. The first cause for this one is is a pretty easy one. It's found in Malachi 2.16. It simply says, God hates divorce. Many people actually think that this was as a result of what was done um, in Israel through Ezra. That is speculation, but regardless, we see that God's heart here is never for divorce, and He hates it. Many of you, as soon as I introduced uh, this passage of Scripture, probably thought to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 13 specifically. It's where Paul gives instructions to the churches about what they should do if they are married to uh, non-believers. And I'm sure most of you assumed, oh, that was the right thing to do, which that is a good thought. Uh, But we also have to remember that uh, Ezra never had that passage. In fact, the only really uh, message that Ezra had from God apart from any revelation coming to him was the Torah. And the Torah never addressed this problem specifically. Uh, Another reason is, again, divorce was never God's intended purpose. Jesus even addressed this in Matthew 19 the Pharisees were pressing on Jesus about divorce. And they said, why did Moses instruct us on how to divorce our wives? Referring to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus' response says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So when God addresses it in Deuteronomy 24, it is not because God is saying, it's okay, you can do this as you please. But it's because God understands the massive, harsh effects of divorce. And he wanted to put a circle around it and and put some restrictions around how you do it to try to minimize that damage. The last reason for why Ezra maybe wasn't right in doing this is that um, there was precedence for Israelites marrying women from other nations. Now, most of the time, those women didn't necessarily serve pagan gods. um, But even if they did, a thought could be had that the alternative to putting away your wives was to tell the Israelites that they had to worship uh, the God of Israel and that they had to put away pagan practices in order to keep their wives. Those are just a couple of maybe the many uh, reasons why, but now we're going to look at uh, a couple reasons why Ezra maybe was right in ordering this divorce. The first one is what something we've already touched on is simply Israel was ordered, commanded not to do this. 
Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 34 specifically attack this in which God commands the people of Israel not to marry uh, these certain people groups who are practicing pagan worship. And so such continued disobedience could have called for uh, more serious countermeasures to avoid this happening again. Uh, a counter in regards to the First Corinthian passage is that, sure, uh, it provides guidance for Christians today, um, but you, you have to understand the context. We go back to context of, um, is that just for that time? Is that just for the New Age Christians? Or is it, could that be applied to uh, the people of Israel? And then, sure there's, sure, there's precedence for Israelites marrying women from other nations and not being corrupted. Um, but are we really going to trust um, the same people who time and time again continue to disobey God uh, without bars for any kind of provisions made on their behalf? Lastly, and I say this really caref carefully, but I, I did think of this, and I think that this is a, a valid reason that there is precedence within the Bible for a lesser sin um, to be committed on behalf of uh, moving towards the glory of God and on behalf of serving God. The one of probably only a few examples I think of is in Joshua chapter 2. We look at Rahab the harlot who's living in Jericho. Israel spies come into Jericho seeking to search out the land for any weaknesses, and Rahab takes the spies in. When the people of Jericho are moving around trying to find the spies, they come to Rahab's door and they ask her if she has them and she lies to them and tells them no and then lets them slip out the back door. Once Israel overtakes Jericho, they save Rahab and Rahab is heralded for her faith and, and her faith towards God and service to God. So, of course, that was a sin, but... Um, could the same be applied to this situation that, yes, divorce is a sin, but they were doing it for the purpose of serving God and to be more righteous? Ultimately, what is the conclusion? I think this is a case of doing one thing God hates uh, in substitute for another that he hates. One could argue there was really no right answer here, and I don't think any of us really envy Ezra. But I think there are some um, obvious conclusions behind this, uh, particularly the response. The first one, and maybe most impactful for me, is that God cares so deeply about who we marry. That decision can be so lax nowadays in a culture that divorce is rampant and, and really just not cared for. But um, I, I just implore you, if you're single or dating or even engaged, um, really pay close attention to this. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So Paul makes it clear here that we should be careful with all relationships in regard to unbelievers. But how much more careful should we be in regards to the most important relationship um, with a human that we'll have in our lifetime. If you are in Christ, then Christ is the most important thing to you. And frankly, it doesn't really make sense as to why we would put away uh, what we call our number one priority um, and for the sake of being attracted to someone or liking someone's personality. Um, and I hope this doesn't come off as too harsh um, because I have been in this position. There is a there is just a horrible trend within the church, I believe, of 
people trying to evangelize to their boyfriend or girlfriend and say that, oh, I can date them, but I can lead them to Christ. And that, frankly, is not biblical. That's not what God has called us to do. Um, we are supposed to be in relationships uh, and deep relationships with other Christians so that that unity of marriage can be used to serve the kingdom. And really lastly, the last conclusion from this is, uh, while this may have seemed like a harsh or even ungodly thing to do by Ezra, regardless of what you think uh, of what he did, you have to look at why he did it. And I believe this was Ezra trying to set a standard of radical repentance on behalf of the Israelites. He understands um, that, that they have continued to sin. And again, even this sin led them into the exile that they just got back from. So I believe that we can all understand, we can all take away that we should look at this as an example of no holds barred repentance, doing everything uh, within our will and through the power of the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the Bible to repent from our sins and put away everything that might tempt us to stray from God. So you may have noticed that we actually uh, skipped the middle section of chapter 9. And so we're going to address that right now. This is Ezra chapter 9 uh, verses 5 through 15. This is Ezra's public prayer confession on behalf of the Israelites. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subject to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives us light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia, he has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is, pollute, is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to another. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt? And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of, because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Um, so here we see Ezra pouring out his heart um, on behalf of himself and on behalf of his people. 
And I think this really is the crux of, of the passage. I think we can learn a lot from this, and I just want to take a moment to analyze some of the key points that I believe Ezra was, was trying to um, convey to, to the people. The first is about the characteristics of God and, and the character of God. Verse 15, he says, God is righteous. We know that God is good. Verse 13 says, You, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve. He's saying God is merciful. You see, remember, Ezra was a scholar. He undoubtedly knew the past, and he knew um, the past of not only Israel, but also people um, throughout history of, of God destroying entire nations for their sin. And so Ezra, sitting here after being given chance and chance again, can only stand with his hands out and say, thank you, God, for your mercy. We don't deserve it. And this actually brings up um, a question that I'm asked a lot, and I'm sure maybe you guys are asked a lot. It's an even more prevalent question in the times that we're in today. And it's that why does God allow suffering? If he's all-powerful and he's good and he loves people, why does he allow the suffering that we see today? And I would tell you that it is actually because of God's mercy that he allows suffering. That may seem backwards to you, but think about it. The suffering today, the suffering from people on earth today is so much less than the suffering will be had when God pours out his full judgment on the sinners of the world who are not covered by Jesus. And so every day that God withholds that judgment is a day of mercy. Not only for that, because day after day, more and more people come to know Christ and come to be covered by Jesus' blood from that righteous anger that God will pour out. So while suffering is bad, it serves a greater purpose of adding to the kingdom of God and adding more and more people to be saved by Jesus and, and be delivered from um, the, the suffering that will be had for people when God comes back. The second thing I really pulled out is that um, in the prayer, I also see Ezra address humans and the character of humans. In quite a contrast from the character of God, we see him speak harshly and honestly about how sinful humans are. And it's not just the Israelites. He speaks for all people here. In verse 6, he says, Our iniquities have arisen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Verse 7 says, Since the days of our fathers, we have been in great guilt. Verse 10 says, We have forsaken your commands. And verse 15 says, We are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. So while God is righteous and good, humans are sick and sinful. And every second that someone is apart from God and He does not strike them right there is an act of mercy that we, frankly, cannot comprehend or understand. But I believe Ezra gets it. Even though he wasn't actually engaged in this sin, you notice Ezra was not one of the ones intermarrying. He just came back, but he also addresses himself in the prayer. He not only says, oh, woe to these people for they have sinned, but for all people, for we have all sinned, verse 15, we all stand condemned before God. And the last thing I think um, that which really leads into um, chapter 10 is, is repentance. 
part for me of what makes this uh, a really cool passage is you see the events kind of trickle down. So in verse four, it says that the people gathered to him. So we know that this was a public prayer. This was a public confession that people were listening to this. And then in the beginning of chapter one, verse, or chapter 10, verse one says that the people wept bitterly as a result of this prayer. His prayer caused them to become convicted. Many of these people were also probably not involved in the sins um, that were being addressed, but they all stand convicted because they understood their place before God. And I believe Ezra understands how serious sin is. He would not have addressed it the way he did um, if he didn't understand the seriousness of sin. And in preparing for this and in uh, reading this, I actually also became convicted. I thought to myself, do I take sin that seriously? Do I mourn for the sin of my brothers and sisters? And do I even mourn for my own sin? Sin is the reason that Jesus had to come and to bear the suffering that he did. Sin is the reason that we are far from the glory of God. Sin is essentially saying that, God, I either don't agree with you, the creator of the universe, on what you said here, or I don't care. And I fear that within um, the global church today, we have two parties of people um, that are often shown. Not everybody, of course, but, but these parties often speak the loudest. On one hand, you have the legalistic people, the people who have no grace, have no mercy on any other sinners and also on themselves. They take the law to the fullest extent, ignoring the sacrifice and grace that Jesus brought for us. But on the other hand, we have the people who cheapen the grace of God, who say, because Jesus died for our sins, that I can go living as I want because, hey, I got grace. Both sides are incredibly wrong, and they lose important factors into what Jesus did for us. And I believe that we need to be um, keenly aware uh, that we avoid both sides and that we do our best praying to God that, that He would guide us in the middle of, being, of hating sin, but also understanding that when we do sin, there is grace for that. So um, in, in closing, closing um, I, I think it's often difficult for us, especially in the Old Testament, to see where Jesus fits into these stories. You know, we know everything points to Jesus, but sometimes it's hard to see. Um, and I don't know if that's the case for you right here, um, but I do want us to ponder where is, is Jesus here? I think that's important to ponder in, in every passage. So while it may not seem like it, the book of Ezra actually ends on kind of a high note. It might be strange for us, but um, with this repentance taking place and the sending away of wives, I believe there is hope for Israel that, that they may actually um, live righteously. But spoiler alert, they don't do it. And that is why knowing the context and seeing Jesus here is so important. If not, we run the risk of thinking that uh, we see the Israelites repenting and, oh, they must go on and do great things. So that means if we just try harder, that we could be made righteous. And that's just not the case. Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life that we could never live, die the death that we all deserve. 
and he paid for our sins. But that is not the end. Three days later, he rose from the grave in symbolization that we may also rise up through the blood of Christ. So if you sit here today and you have never repented from your sin and you have never decided to throw away your old life and to follow Jesus and to live for Christ, then I invite you right now, wherever you are, if you're driving, pull over the the car and call someone. If you're sitting there, talk with someone who you trust. This is the most vitally important thing in every single person's life. And I invite you to just talk with someone that you trust about what that looks like. Don't make it a snappy decision. Count the cost of what it actually looks like to follow Christ. But I promise you, the cost, that you, everything that you will lose, compares nothing to what you will gain in Christ. And if you also sit here today and you have already done that, you are in the body of Christ, you have been saved by His blood, then I invite you to praise God with me. Praise God for His mercy and His grace that He has shown us through Jesus. And also, I I pray that as you sit there, as we get ready to worship, um, that you would just ask God to reveal the parts of your life where you have not yet allowed Him to rip the old flesh off. Pray that God would renew your life with new flesh and that that you would move in a direction of sanctification and, and glorification of God. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for everything you have done for us. God, the the price that we can never repay you. Um, Father, just the the sacrifice of Jesus, um, your word that you've given us so that we may um, walk in in righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you for that. God, I pray that that, um, over the course of of this talk that um, you would have just worked in the lives of every person listening. God, you know where they're at with you, where they stand with you. Um, And I pray that um, nobody would leave um, wherever they are right now without at least giving you a chance to to speak into their life and to repent of whatever sin they're currently in right now. Father, I uh, just thank you for um, everything you've done for me as as I've prepared for this. And I pray that that would be reciprocated into the hearts of the people of your church and that we would um, go on to glorify you this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.